First Thessalonians chapter 1. I'd like to take the time to read the entire chapter, so all ten verses tonight, and then we'll ask God's blessing on our time, and then dig into the truth of God's word this evening. The word of God says, Paul, Silvanus, or Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out, so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Let's start with a word of prayer tonight. Father, I do thank you for the opportunity we have to open your word. Father, we know that when your, your word is open, your Holy Spirit speaks to us. And God, I pray tonight that our hearts would be open to that. We would, be, we would be receptive to the Word of God, to the truth of God's Word. I pray that you would help us to look at your Word accurately so that we could apply it appropriately. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The development of the camera has become extremely advanced, hasn't it? I'm not a photography expert by any stretch of the imagination. I have very limited knowledge on cameras and what they use, but enough to know a little bit of what we're getting into. From a single-use shot in which the photographer would have to capture a picture under a cover so as not to expose the film to light, to the development of film to allow a person to take multiple pictures before getting them developed. You may even still have some of these 35-millimeter film you know, canisters sitting in your junk drawer somewhere waiting still to be developed, probably from 25, 30 years ago. The advancement has come to the digital age where one can take a picture and see it immediately. The development of the camera has made it so that anyone can capture a photo at any time. Our cell phones are a classic example of this. Remember when your flip phone first came out with a 1.5 megapixel camera? I mean, we thought we hit the jackpot in seeing photography at its finest. And then the next generation came out with one that was 2.6 megapixels. Man, life was getting better. The development of the smartphone jumped from the 2.6 megapixel to the 5 megapixel camera, and you had a 1.6 megapixel camera in the front. So you could take the now-known selfie. We thought we were better picture takers than those who had spent hundreds and thousands of dollars on equipment that was actually made for photography. 
While it is true that the cameras on our phones have come a long way, they are made for the convenience more than professional photos. A professional camera often has a single reflexive lens, an SLR, to allow the professional to develop, a, to capture a detail that he or she is looking for. And to be able to capture the detail, they must be able to adjust the shutter speed as well as the light exposure. Taking a picture of a night at the Grand Canyon will not be taken in the same fashion as taking a picture of an athlete playing a game on the field or court. To be able to capture all of the necessary details, the shutter speed and light exposure will be changed. So if I want to capture the glorious, grandiose details of the Grand Canyon on a star-filled night, I will adjust my speed and exposure to allow for me to see the details. The point is that if I want to capture a certain type of picture, then I must know what my camera can and can't do. I have to learn how to use it. I just can't point and click and expect to become the next greatest photographer by accident. The picture, the picture of Thessalonica's beginning is a lot like some of our pictures on our first camera phones. The details are present, but they don't come in very clear or very crisp. And you can find a snapshot of this picture in Acts chapter 17, verses 1 to 9. Paul's custom, as I will summarize for our time, for sake of time tonight, in any new city that he went into was to go straight to the synagogue and preach the gospel there first. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 declares how Paul was not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So he would practice what he was preaching by going to the synagogue first. From there, he would take those who, makes a, who made a profession of faith and begin to disciple them. This discipleship process would then lead into a natural organization of a local church. Paul would often stay long enough for them to be established and then would move on to the next city. He would return to the churches he, he helped establish as he was traveling through on the different missionary journeys that he went on. We know that he had a heart for each one of the local churches that he helped establish, as we have many letters in the New Testament that demonstrate that heart of love. He would pray for them. He would encourage them. He would teach them. He would even take time to admonish them. The uniqueness of the church in Thessalonica was that Paul was only there for three, maybe four weeks maximum before he, Silas, and Timothy were literally run out of town. The preaching of the gospel there had such a tremendous impact on the city that the unconverted Jews wanted them gone as soon as possible. They persuaded some of the troublemakers of the town to cause a riot and then blame Paul and his companions for disturbing their peace with their controversial message. Let me back up. This is not a town. This is a, this is a city of about 100,000 people, maybe to 200,000 people based off of where it's located. The Roman leaders were forced to take action and arrested Jason and some of the new believers who were hosting these three men. Once bail was posted and assurance that Paul, Silas, and Timothy were gone, they let them go. Paul desperately wanted to return to them but could not seem to get back. He does send Timothy back to make sure the church is able to get established, but they are since a, a few months removed. 
And Timothy reports back to Paul with such encouraging news that the Thessalonians were spiritually hungry and zealous for the gospel. The purpose of 1 Thessalonians was three, for, for three reasons. Number one, to praise God for their steadfastness under persecution. It was then to instruct them concerning holy living and then to correct any of their misunderstandings, especially about the second coming of Christ. In light of what is to come, we as believers must have a proper picture of what the church is to look like. When the Lord moves us, because of a job relocation, or to be closer to family, or for some other reason, we are left looking for a new church. It is not uncommon for us to look for that, a church that is very similar to the one that we just left, or are leaving. And even as we get involved in that new ministry, we will find ourselves thinking, or sometimes even saying, about how the previous church used to do such and such. Or how they used to have this type of activity. Now, it's not that we can't take ideas away from a previous church and want our new church to have some of those same ideas. However, we must be careful not to set aside the questions of the supremacy of God's Word and the supremacy of Christ to letting the familiar programs be our ultimately decide, ultimate deciding factors of whether we will attend this church or not. Chapter 1 gives us a picture of an ideal church. And it is a picture that we as Tri-City Baptist Church would do well to look at. Tonight I want us to see two main points. Number one, that we must bring the picture of the church into a clear view. We must bring the, the picture of the church into a clear view. I can feel the sense of relief that the slide is gone. <laughs> I kept looking at it like, oh man, it's not changing. And I'm the one that designed it that way. The intent, though, realistically, is for us to understand that sometimes we take a preconceived notion, really a blurred idea, rather than seeing the clarity of Scripture to what is to be seen as it relates to the church. Look at what the verse says in verse 1 of chapter 1. I think oftentimes we overlook the first couple of verses of a text, of a book, primarily because we see them as a greeting a dear John, as it were, a, a formalized, uh, how you doing type of idea. But I think Paul does a couple of things in this greeting that are important for us to take a look at. He begins when understanding the clear picture of her church, that the, her origin is found in God. What does he say? To the church of the Thessalonians, in God, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. God is the author of his church. He is the one who has written the book on how it's to be done and how we're to orchestrate it in, our, in the Word of God. It is oftentimes in the Old Testament when he looks at the details of how Israel was to worship the Lord, there was great detail on how God wanted them to worship. Our New Testament text doesn't give us so many of the details in the way that we ought to do church today, but it does paint a picture as to what God is looking for when his church is to come together. And by his church, we mean us as believers. Look at what he says here again to the church of the Thessalonians. Notice that Paul, although he's referencing a location, a place a loca of where these believers are, he's not saying the church at Thessalonica. He's not listing the crossroads as to where this location was, the building, the, the, the state of the art or, uh, you know, facility that they're using. He's calling to the people. 
He's wanting them to draw the attention that, the, that God's church is within his people. Her focus is on the people and not property or the programs. Folks, tonight it's important for us to remember if the property of Tri-City Baptist Church was taken away from us, we would still be the church. If the, pro, if the programs that we run and operate were no longer operable, we would still be the church. I don't want to sound like our programs are, are illegitimate, that we shouldn't have these types of things. That was not the case at all. But when they have a, a purpose behind them to understand that we're growing and facilitating the body of Christ in their relationship with Christ, then the reality of those programs can be very effective and helpful. But as was mentioned, when we start to take the programs as the focal point for why we will choose to go somewhere over the supremacy of God's word and the teaching of God's word, we probably have started a problem. Paul's focus here is simply on the people, not the property or the programs. And then he reiterates again at the end of verse 1 that it is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Her life is found in Christ and because of Christ. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18 is when Peter references that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Christ responds to Peter, upon the statement of truth that you have made regarding me, I will build my church. He doesn't base it upon programs. He doesn't base it upon just ideals. He says it's upon me and me alone. The reality is, though, he uses us. And the way that he uses us is for those that have placed their faith and trust in Christ. It means that we have to come to Christ. We must see ourselves as primarily new creatures in the Lord Jesus Christ and in God the Father. The apostle will stress this truth. Paul is going to stress this over and over throughout this letter. If the origin of the church is in God and if Christ will build his church, then what is our role? Paul continues his portrait with an unpixelated view of what church members are to be doing. Going back to my camera illustration, have you ever taken a picture with your smartphone and thought, this would be a really good picture for me to put in a frame? I know I've done that. So you send the picture over to Walgreens or CVS and you ask them to print it. You're excited about what you have. You got a picture frame that will go right into the mantel or the area that you want it to be, right in the wall. And you're excited to be able to place that picture in for the world to see the memory that you have created. When you go to pick it up, though, you find that the picture has pixelated. It's not at all what your screen looked like. And you wonder, why is that? What happened? Well, mainly because the camera settings for your, are, are for your screen size, that you are taking a picture, and that is good for the screen as well as the formatting, as to save it to your memory card with the most, allow for you the most, to have the most space. Most of the time, though, we can adjust those settings to allow for us to gain a better clarity. But if we just assume that the standard settings in the phone will give us professional quality pictures, <laughs> we will find ourselves frustrated every time we go to print. The same can be said of our, ministry, our view of ministry in the church. 
We could have a template in our mind based off of our experiences in other churches that begin to shape our understanding of the purpose of ministry within our churches. And when the Lord moves us, we are sorely disappointed by how pixelated our view has become. And just like we are tempted to blame the photo center for their inability to print clear pictures, we start to blame churches for why they aren't growing. Folks, tonight I need us to see, number two, that God's word gives us an unpixelated view of ministry here in 1 Thessalonians. We are going to spend most of our time with this second point. Obviously, as I said, we only have two. So I'm not almost done, I promise. But I want us to see a few things that I think are, are extremely important as we look at the rest of this chapter. Number one, look at Paul's prayer. If we're going to have an unpixelated view of ministry in the church, we must have a focus of prayer. Paul starts with saying in verse 2, We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. He begins with a prayer of thanksgiving. I find it ironic or interesting that he, that he begins with a prayer of thanksgiving, that his initial response isn't, God, will you fix them, or will you fix this, or will you do this for them, or will you accomplish this? It simply is just a prayer of thanksgiving. The thankfulness of who God is in their life is what rolls off his tongue. He doesn't start his prayer off with requests of change, nor is he asking God to fix them, as sometimes we would do when we have somebody that we're, we're really interested in seeing grow in their walk with Christ. I think there's a good reminder, as I was studying for this, I didn't really think about where Paul was writing this letter from. As Paul is writing 1 Thessalonians, his heart's desire is to go back to the city, and he knows that he's not going to be able to get there until probably a much later time, if he can get there at all. And his heart is to say, I, I want to see you grow in your fellowship with Christ. I want to see everything that has been testified of you. He's sitting in Corinth writing this letter. I find that fascinating to me. Because Por Corinth was not the example that we would most likely use on, on a proper setting of worship. Corinth was not a, 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 an example of what we would probably use on, on really how to live a successful Christian life. While there are those attributes and those that are, there are things that are come out of that text, more often than not, we think of the, the, the church at Corinth as one that has a lot of problems. And probably to the extent that when Paul is writing this, he's extremely frustrated that they just won't get it. But yet, look at his response in the midst of writing this letter to the Thessalonians. He's not asking God to, he's not asking the Thessalonians to pray for him for he, that he won't be frustrated with the Corinthians. He's not asking the Thessalonians to take on the burden for him, maybe in an unspoken request, so as to hide the identity of where he's at or what he's trying to accomplish and to protect those who are going to read the letter. He begins, even in the midst of frustration in service of ministry, with a heart of thanks. And it helps us see a couple of things that he, he demonstrated a heart of habitual prayer. Folks, prayer doesn't just happen by accident. Just like your growth in the Christian life doesn't happen by accident, it's an intentional decision and an intentional habit that you have to begin to understand and begin to work through. 
I think it's important for us tonight. I want to list off, I have 10 different references. I'm not going to look at all 10 of them, but I want us to look at a couple of them, and then I will list off or tell you the other ones that we want to look at later on and encourage you to go and take a look at these. But at the beginning of almost every epistle that Paul writes, he begins with a prayer of thankfulness. Turn in your Bibles over to Romans chapter 1. I think it's important for us to see when you talk about Paul having a habit of prayer, Every reference that I'm using tonight is more on the entry or the beginning part of the text or the, it, the, his epistles. It, he, he, he prays numerous amount of times throughout the epistles for the, the people he's writing to. But I want us to see just how important prayer was as every aspect of Paul's life. Look at verses 8 to 10. Paul says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my, within, with my spirit and the gospel and of his Son, that without ceasing make mention of you always in my prayers, making request, if by some means now at last I might find a way in the will of God to come to you. I want to finish through verse 12. I said verse 10, but let me finish through verse 12 because I think this is important. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift so that you may be established. His heart is that they become and grow organically as a, as a gospel-believing church and where they are. But then look at what he says in verse 12. This is what grabs my attention the most. This is what defines us as a disciple-making disciple right here. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith both of you and me. Paul's not writing to the Romans to say, let me tell you how much knowledge I have and how much you need to learn from me. He's writing to the Romans to say, I have yet to learn, and I want you to come along the journey with me as I write and learn. Look at 1 Corinthians. Even 1 Corinthians, he writes with a prayer of thankfulness of, of all churches that you would think he's just writing out of frustration. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Again, I want us to see the habit that Paul is instilling, and I think that's important for us to see. If we're going to have a, a heart that's demonstrating a love for the Lord in the, right, in the correct manner, having a love for his people as the church together, that it really has a focus in on prayer. Paul says in verse 4, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which is given to you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by him in all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of, was, of Christ was confirmed in you so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, that you may be blameless in that day, in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Even in the midst of frustration, in what Paul is going to have to address, and what he knows he's going to have to address, he stops and he begins to give thanks to God, so that his heart before the Lord is not one of frustration, but one that demonstrates that God can still work. He's even thankful for them. Go over to Ephesians chapter 1. I told you we're going to flip through a few of these. Ephesians chapter 1. 
The only epistle that Paul does not write a letter of thanks to in the beginning of his letter is the book of Galatians. And the reality of Galatians is he's, he's coming at them with, how, how have you so quickly turned away from the gospel? He needs to go in and make some, some immediate corrections. But every other letter, he has these, these thanksgiving prayers. I won't read the entire text as it's important we've been going through that. Ephesians 3, or 1, verses 3 to 14. And in reality, probably actually goes to the end of the chapter, verse 23. But he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us as sons by Jesus Christ himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. And you can continue on to read that. Let me look at one more. Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. Pay attention to some of the key words or see if you can grab some key words in the way that Paul prays from this text. Verse 3, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine making requests for you with all joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ just as it is right for me to think this of you because I, of you all because I have you in my heart inasmuch as both in my chains and in, my, in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things which are excellent, that, are, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. If you've got a pen tonight, let me encourage you to write these other references down. And I would say in your, in your quiet time with the Lord, take note, how, Paul is, how is Paul praying? Could I pray in the similar fashion as Paul is praying? Can I have a, a quiet time with the Lord and, and be able to testify of God's grace in my life in the same fashion that Paul is praying? You have 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 to 7. You have Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, which mirrors a lot of that of Ephesians. You have 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 3 to 12. You have 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 to 17. That's a unique prayer in which Paul gives his personal testimony, writing towards a pastor to encourage him as to what God can do in his life. You have 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 to 7. You have Philemon, verses 4 to seven. And of course you have this prayer here in First Thessalonians chapter one, verses three or two to three to ten. 
As Paul begins his prayer here in verse 3, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. That's not the right chapter. Sorry. Back to 1 Thessalonians 1. I should probably turn there too. be hard to give you a clear view if mine's not very clear, huh? We give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God, our God and Father. He begins with a present tense verb, with the active voice, which means he is continually thanking God. Not just him, but the team in which he's with. Paul makes it a matter of prayer with the group that he's with because it's important to him. He makes it important to his group that they're coming together for the sake of the gospel. I love that we have our time together on Wednesday nights. That we do, whether it's in your care group or whether it's our, our corporate time of worship on Wednesday night together, that we make matter of prayer together, that we hold each other accountable because our, our responsibility is to grow in fellowship with one another. Paul says he makes it a continuous aspect, a continuous motion by continually thanking God. It gives the idea that thankfulness is an active part of Paul's life. Our society today doesn't regard thankfulness very high. Ironically, even around the day of Thanksgiving, it's not about giving thanks so much as it is about all you want to get. Folks, if we're going to make a, dim, uh, 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 a difference in our world today, it really does start by giving thanks to God. Having a heart of thankfulness. Praying night and day also has a pedigree in the Psalms where the phrase does not mean evening and morning prayers, but desperate, unending intercession for God's help. Psalm 88, verses 1 and 2 Lord, you are, my, are the God who saves me. Day and night I cry to you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. Paul's prayer here in 1 Thessalonians 1 is not a prayer of acknowledgement to the Lord that he, he knows your need and then to leave it there. It is a constant acknowledgement of our need of God's intervention and trusting in him to answer. Notice he is specific in his thankfulness to the Lord. Always. He's going to get into verse 4 for the specific reasons of what those are. He's not just generic. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers without ceasing, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope. It's an active part of his life. It reminds me of what Dr. Endine challenged us with at our last prayer meeting when he took us to Matthew chapter 6 and, and presented the Lord's Prayer and said, the facet of hallowed be your name. And the reality of that hallowed be your name is not just a thought of holiness of God's name, but a belief about the holiness of God's name that prompts us to action. So that we would see our unsaved neighbors through the lens of the holiness of God's name and desire that they come to know Christ. And they too could see and understand the holiness of God's name. How hallowed is his name and revered. Do we pray that way? 
Or do we complain? Do we list our prayers to the Lord in thankfulness for what God is doing in our life? Or do we gripe and complain that we don't have the success that others might have? Notice, secondly, with his prayer, having an unpixelated view of ministry in the church gives us the evidence of Christ at work. What does he say? Remembering three things here. Your work of faith, your labor of love, and patience of hope. Our eyes often focus in on the, lo- the faith, love, and hope. All those are important aspects of what Paul is going for. And it's fitting that he's in Corinth as he's writing this, as this is probably the message that he's been preaching to the Corinthian church, in which we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. He's not focused in on the faith, love, and work as much as he is the adjectives describing it. Your labor of love. Or your work of faith, your labor of love and patience of hope. So Paul says, begins with the work of faith. He is not publishing a works-based salvation, but is wanting us to see that faith takes work. You can see all throughout Scripture the reality of what faith does and needing to take work. You can go to the book of James and see when James describes in James chapter 2, show me your faith without your works and I'll demonstrate my faith by my works. That it's not a prompting of what salvation or us getting saved by our works, but the evidence of what Christ has done in us prompts us then to be obedient to him. So what is this work of faith that Paul speaks of? He sums it up himself in verse 9 when he says that you have turned to God from idols and you serve the living and true God. He speaks to that. This is faith at work. Faith is not merely belief. It is something that changes you. It is more than a verbal affirmation of the truth. It is a demonstration of the truth. Faith makes you turn from what is wrong to what is right, from dark and hurtful things to right and true and healthy things. And especially faith will turn you from the worship of idols to God. In a culture of this, the Thessalonians would, would be all too familiar with the idol, idea, idol worship in their culture. It was the establishment of everything they did within our, the Greek culture there. And Paul is saying, your faith has been demonstrated in such a way that you have turned completely from those to following after Christ. My works are not my endeavor to obtain favor from God or to develop a righteous standing before Him, but they are an expression of an appreciation, of my appreciation, for all the goodness that God has bestowed upon me. He commands me to deny myself, to take up my cross and to follow him. He commands me to be his witness. In doing those things, they are not works that seek to be righteous before God, but they are obedience of faith. Our faith begins, our work of faith is understanding where we start with salvation, but it doesn't just end there. The sanctification process begins to work in our life and it demonstrates itself through its labor of love. 
This labor of love, as he describes, is far from being simply an emotion. Love sought the best for the other and labored for the other's benefits. This love refers to any kind of self-sacrificing labor the believer engaged in as they served those both inside and outside the community. Both their faith and love generated labors that were for the benefit of others. They didn't do deeds seeking something in return. They didn't have motives behind why they served the Lord other than that God would be honored in the way that they, they served him. It was a sacrificial love. Their motives were pure. It seemed to be a pure understanding of what Jesus meant in the Gospels when he stated the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and then to love your neighbor as yourself. And as Christ presents that picture, he says it's actually the easy, the reality is when my heart, when my heart is focused on loving God with all my heart, soul, and mind, my natural response is to love my neighbor as myself. Their love was not a superficial love that demonstrated itself in friendliness or inconvenience, but one that gave of themselves knowing that it might cost them. As you read and study the qualities of God's true love, you become aware of the areas where your own love needs to evolve. This growth starts when we comprehend the dimensions of God's love. Fully experiencing God's perfect love enables us to ignite our own hearts and actions with Christ-like love, making us true imitators of his love. They had a work of faith that began with their faith and trust in Christ. It was demonstrated through their labor of love for one another, knowing that it would cost them. We know from the text that their, their persecution that went on was a, was a part of that labor. So the third description that Paul says is their patience of hope. Christians live expectantly in hope as evidence of the genuineness of their commitment to and confidence in the Lord. It is the proof of a genuine faith that Paul was celebrating in his thanksgiving. When in our church's faith and love are evidenced in word and deed, when hope enables endurance, our leaders have cause for a joyful thanksgiving and an obligation to affirm the fellowship. The patience here is the idea of endurance. Becomes the ability to remain steadfast and persevere in the face of suffering and temptation. And the source of this perseverance, perseverance was not some inner resolve or some personal strength, but in their hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul challenges, or he's, what he's affirming for them is that they have trusted Christ, they have come together to be disciples in Christ, they're encouraging one another and his testimony before the Lord and his thanksgiving before the Lord is that your work and your labor and your patience are demonstrated. That it's obvious that Christ is at work in you. It's not just done at the individual level, but it's seen within the community.
as he will continue through the chapter, as he will continue through the book, you will find other things that are important to see as having this unpixelated view of the church, but for tonight we're going to run out of time. I'd like for us just to think for a moment as we close our service. Paul demonstrated at the beginning to have a clear view of the church, an unpixelated view of the church, it really begins with a thankful heart. When was the last time you just woke up in the morning and said, thanks God for the day? When was the last time you just expressed a thankfulness for the food that's on your table? When was the last time you just expressed a thankfulness for the people that God placed in your life? Whether you like them or not. When was the last time you just expressed a thankfulness for the workplace that God has placed you in? Knowing that he's providing for your needs but also giving you opportunities with the gospel. The habit of prayer doesn't happen overnight. It happens over time as we intentionally invest our life and our time, our thoughts, and our actions into the Word of God. You ever felt like when you have a moment of prayer that just doesn't have any meaning to you? My encouragement to you is get in these, get in these texts. See how Paul prays. Look at the book of Psalms. Pray through the Psalms as David oftentimes is writing in prayer form. And say, God, establish my heart to be a heart of prayer. The fellowship is sweet. I guarantee as the habit is formed, your outlook on life will change. Your outlook of people change. Even your outlook of your work environment sometimes changes because the focal point of our life isn't about where we are, what we're doing, but it's about God being magnified in and through us. Are you thankful? Do you have a clear view of what God's doing in your heart? That clarity comes from the Word of God. Get in it. Read it. Grow in it. Let's pray together.